Welcome to the Attentive Heart Podcast, where we explore how an integration of mind, body, and spirit make us whole and enable us to become more compassionate to ourselves and to others. I'm your host, John Grabovich. Today, my guest is Kaya. Uh, Kaya, why don't you just tell us a little bit more about your background um, and what occupies most of your time these days? So my name is Kaya Oaks, and I'm a writer, and uh, I teach writing at UC Berkeley. Um, I write about religion, primarily um, about the Catholic Church and how it intersects with people on the margins, and um, I am currently at work on a book that is tentatively called Not So Sorry, The Limits of Forgiveness, which is an exploration of when forgiveness is and is not possible. Yeah, that's so much to to say just with that. Uh, So, you know, I first knew of you from your publications, primarily in Commonweal in America, and it was really great to eventually meet you in person when I was studying out at uh, UC Berkeley. And, uh, you know, I'm just so taken by your your journey, like how you are able to make the intersection between faith and I guess your own life experiences, your own struggles. So, I mean, is there something that brought you into the place of knowing that your faith is important to those struggles or is what's able to make sense of them? I mean, was there a moment in time where that started to connect that way or how did that evolve? Well, I wrote a book about it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, about 10 or 12 years ago, published a book called Radical Reinvention, which is a story about how in my so I was raised Catholic and like many Gen Xers and, and millennials and Gen Zs, I kind of checked out of the church for uh, in my teens. And then what brought me back and made me realize that I do have a very spiritual um, side that is fed by uh, religion of, and specifically Christianity. Um, what made me realize that was, you know, just as in with many people, I had a series of losses, people close to me who died, uh, my own struggles with depression, and um, and that absence revealed that at the bottom of the absence, there wasn't much there. Um, and so for some people uh, who are more secular, they can fill that in other ways, creatively, um, or with the natural world. And, and I love those things, but I needed something else. And so that brought me to back to religious practice and all of its complicated, messy, <laughs> sometimes right. inconvenient things that come out of that. Um, but yeah, so the arc was basically, that's the basics of the arc. Sure. And and how did you make an entry back? I mean, that could be daunting in and of itself. I mean, is it just simply like showing up at the closest church? Or I mean, like how or how did you get that point of entry or re-entry, I should say? Like many people, I just went back to where I started. So I went back to my childhood church. I still live where I grew up. So that was easier 
for, for me and then for many people. Um, and I happened to hear a homily um, by this very old priest um, who was in his 90s. And I, I thought it was so kind and generous. I thought he would be a good person to talk to. Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, made an appointment with him. And his name was Father Al Moser. He died. Uh, he was a Paulist priest. He died about... Oh my gosh, he died the year Donald Trump was elected. Okay. <laughs> so, um, like a lot of people died that year. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, he uh, he really just was like, he said something that I always remember, which is, I was very concerned that I would not be able to come in. I would have to give up a lot of who I was to get back into the church. And um, he said, that's not true. You know, everything you're going to bring with you is a gift you know including um all of your all of your politics all of your all of your work out in the with the students that you do uh your identity uh everything is part of who you are as a as a believer and that you don't check those things at the door yeah and um that was really what i needed to hear and from there it was you know, I did RCIA, I didn't have to, but I decided that I hadn't had a very good catechesis as a child and uh, that I needed to sort of know more of the nuts and bolts stuff. And because I love doing research and learning, you know, of course, I went off and, you know, was constantly asking people for book recommendations and um, things to read and then met a few people who taught at the Graduate Theological Union and took some classes there once in a while and yeah so it's just it was just a matter of like knocking you know knock on the door and see who answers it and the right person answered it I was very lucky in that regard yeah I was just gonna say I mean I, I guess the thing I was thinking of when you said that was that okay it's great that this priests have the wisdom to say bring who you are into this whole new experience if you want to call it that but i mean has it always been that welcoming along the way i mean have you find no. that because, <laughs> but, yeah i mean like well, how, how have you been able to negotiate that i mean you know. so part of as you know um a part of my what i realized sort of along the way is that in my uh in my pre-Catholic life or my, you know, in my 20s and 30s, I spent a lot of time doing activism and being involved in, in music in particular. And what those two things kind of have in common is that I met a lot of people who were not interested in religion and I married somebody who's not religious and, mm -hmm. um, and a lot of my siblings left the church. And, and so I was very much uh i i did i never the people who care about me never questioned my decision to go back to the church i mean they were confused a little bit and sort of like what does this mean and i don't you know like let's talk about it i don't quite understand it but they respected me enough to kind of come around to understanding it and that's part of why i started writing about it too to make sense of it to people who aren't religious but the no the when I've gotten a no or uh, uh, from the church itself, mm -hmm. it's often been things like not getting invited to this and this place to speak, or I've had 
speaking invitations rescinded like they look a little deeper into things that i've written right. and just and decide not to invite me or somebody asked you recently have you ever gone to the la religious education congress which is this giant right yeah, yeah I, I, no <laughs> i've never been invited to that but the the no always is answered by a yes somewhere else right so if i'm not invited to the Los Angeles Religious Education Congress, I am invited to be on a podcast like I recently was for for um, LGBTQ Christians. And I'm not in that group, but I, I write about them and I have a lot of students who identify that way. And so that was like a real gift to be with sure. their community. So, yeah, so uh, so I think that no is usually a temporary thing when the church says no it's usually no for now and then something else is going to come along do you feel it's as as if it's the church saying no or do you just feel it's like a group of people in the church saying no i mean i, I know that maybe it could be splitting hairs but i mean do you feel as if somehow you're somewhere on the I don't know, the theological spectrum that you have your place and, and like uh, in relationship to the, let's just say the, what the church maybe um, hierarchical, hierarchically kind of saying, or I mean, like, like how, what, what do you mean by the church? I guess I should just get that way. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm glad you asked that because I do think that as with um, politics and everything else, we tend to use a lot of institutional shorthand Right. right, like so the left, the right, um, yep. the church, the church is, of course, comprised of individuals, but the Catholic Church is hierarchical as an institution. And so there are people at the top and there are people who are not at the top. And right. the problem is that the people at the top sometimes aren't hearing what the people who aren't at the top are talking about, right? right. And that's where this synod is trying to go. Um, as I've not been following it in a lot of great detail, but I know some friends who've gone to like listening sessions. And so this is sort of like an attempt to hear, you know, from the people who aren't at the top. But when I talk about the church, I'm usually thinking about the institutional um, church, which does mean the hierarchical church. So like mm -hmm. the no that Catholics often feel when they knock at the door of something, what they, what they hear from the church is the church as a group of, of people, of men, you know, mm -hmm. mostly at the top, Mm -hmm. are just not hearing them knocking right they don't even hear the knock so that's the that's what i mean by that so like the no is often coming from you know you're not like me personally i don't grieve not being invited to things like to me that's just sort of like that's the way it is sure. but for some people when they feel that 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 they're getting that institutional no like they take that very hard and they leave as we know right right, right. so and that's that's the tragedy right there is that people feel like they're never they're going to just keep knocking forever yeah yeah so i mean does that just knowing that i mean has that really been the impetus to a lot of the things that you have written about is just dealing with 
people who are disenfranchised? I mean, would that be a good way of looking at it? I, I think that you, from what I've read of yours, it, it, you're definitely intrigued by that group, if you want to call it a group, or by the, a, per, a person in that position. Does that motivate you to want to see where is God in the midst of all that, so to speak, or what the church could do there? Or, I mean, what draws your passion and in, in what you want to write and, and how do you arrive at that? Um, I think I realized some years ago, I was on a retreat and um, this is when I was still pretty new to, it's probably the last retreat I've gone on, uh, just quite a while ago. But I was still kind of new to being back in the in into practice as a with the, and I was at, on a retreat with the Jesuits and and I, I talked to this the spiritual director I had and and I said I I was you know I was working on that my first book about Catholicism and I was kind of in the weeds with it and he said you know somebody needs to there needs to be somebody who's who's listening for the people who can't speak up, you know, and, and I keep, he said, including himself. Right. And I thought priests can say anything they want. <laughs> Which, so you, and I, <laughs> you and I both know is not necessarily true. Right. Um, and so it was a really a shock for me to hear this gentlemanly older priest say, mm -hmm. I, I, there's things I want to say, but sometimes I can't say them. And so I need, a writer or a journalist or a parishioner or somebody to be that person. And to, and I take that very seriously because I think the responsibility of journalism is to, um, you know, it's the studs Turco thing. It's like to, um, to question the powerful, but also to amplify the powerless. And as a Catholic journalist, like an essayist and writer, I take that very seriously. Um, so yeah, I try to do my best. Yeah, I mean, I would say that sounds almost like you found a vocation within this, that you, you definitely are responding to a need that others just may are not responding to, at least in, a, in such a poignant way. You know, I'm just thinking more about this this re-entry experience for you. And it sounds as if it was very much connected to your own love for um, academics, the intellect. I mean, your mind definitely seemed to be very much stimulated by this whole delving back into your faith. But was there a practice that started to emerge uh, as well? Like what, what did your spiritual practice look like? Or what does it look like? Or how are you kind of shown a different way to pray let's say or or were you i was i was introduced to contemplation and through i was introduced to contemplative practices through um through jesuit spirituality initially so the examine um for those who are listening and are familiar with it which is at the end of you the day you sort of just go backwards through your day and think about where you were close to god and where god was distant now, do I do that every night? No, but it was a good starting point for me. Um, and then as things have gone along and over the course of COVID, 
and being separated physically from a religious community over the course of COVID, I've become much more interested in solitary practices of contemplation uh, in the sense that I read and wrote a lot about <clears throat> Christian mystics during the pandemic, um, particularly women who were solitaries and uh, like Julian of Norwich came to be very important to my spirituality because I was trapped in a, in a monastic cell uh, on Zoom for two years, um, yeah. just like everybody else. But one thing about her spirituality is that it's very grounded in in these really kind of startlingly intimate encounters with um, with Jesus that she doesn't expect to have. And then for the rest of her life, people come to her as a wisdom figure, but she's sealed off from the world in the cell but one thing about i learned in the process of writing about her is that one of those two windows in the cell that she lives in and one looks out into the village square and the other into the church and i i think that's such a metaphor for contemplative practice is that while we're kind of like spiritually meditating and being in silence and being separate from the world in solitude we're also facing the world and its problems and taking them in to our hearts in prayer and i also read um years ago a book called an infinity of little hours which is about the carthusians and it's an account of these five men who joined the carthusians so they all read Thomas Merton's Seven Story Mountain in the 1950s, and they all are 60s. Maybe they come out. Well, I think I think actually it it came out in the 40s, didn't it? In the, in the 40s, 40s yeah. Right. So they yeah, so they all read it and they all rush off to become monks, and then it's about what happens in that solitude, mm -hmm. and how frightening it is because Carthusians, as as you know, live in a very extreme form of solitude. Uh, where they only speak to other people once a week or something like that. So, so that book has really stuck with me because it's that, again, that interior life can be, uh, we can romanticize solitude, we can romanticize monasticism. And the fact is that the solitary practice of prayer is, is harder in some ways than being going to church and being in community. So, yeah, so these days I'm very much interested in how do we take solitude and use it to be more present to our communities, you know, like how can solitary prayer sharpen our our empathy and make yeah. it greater? Wow, that that's so great. I mean, because that's definitely something I'm very fascinated by. How, how well, first off, is there a, a time of the day that's best for you to be in this kind of solitary contemplative space i mean do you have like a rhythm to this or is it just when you know you need to do it or how does that look like right now it's kind of a mess right now because i'm teaching which mm -hmm. <laughs> is yeah. the great it's great the great disruptor um and and the great joy of my life is like to be in a classroom with students i love it i feel very alive in that space but it's very time consuming and i'm also writing a book so I've lost my rhythm, but in a good in a good time when I'm more 
less stressed out. I will, I'm a, I love to be up early in the morning, like, which I used to hate. I used to be a night bird mm -hmm. and I've completely transformed right. um, into a, a morning person. So I like to get up early and have that quiet morning time, especially in the winter, which is when it's dark outside still. I find that very spiritual. I read, I, again, it might've been in that book about the Carthusians and it might've been somewhere else that part of why people get up at 3 a.m. to pray matins in some monastic orders is because that's like when the world is most spiritually in danger <laughs> because yeah I just thought that's so fascinating but for those of us who have insomnia it's like that's when you wake up right, right. It's, it's 3 a.m. on the dot but that's a good time to sit there and and be you know to you to think about being in gratitude for for god and for life and for other people and um and yeah so that and then i'm a big fan of prayer throughout the day just kind of like making it part of the daily like i don't stop and pray in the middle of the day but just to be uh in prayer like kind of con constantly like in walking and talking and communication with people and just have have moments of being thankful to god for like the encounters that i have and the places the things that i see and even last night somebody broke the window of my car i had been at dinner with a friend and we were actually having this great conversation about spirituality and about religion because mm -hmm. that's what happens when you make right. friends with other people who like this stuff right <laughs> and I, I i came out and someone had broken my car window and i i i didn't get upset i was just like well i live in oakland this is what happens you know like this this sucks but also i'm so grateful that i had that time with my friends that you know this is a little thing that just happened to happen and i'm just going to take care of it and get it fixed but it just sort of felt like I wasn't mad at the person. I just had this, I was just in such a state of like gratitude that it didn't face me. Yeah. So plus it's not the first time. Right, right, right. <laughs> How many car windows I've had <laughs> repaired. <laughs> I remember when I was living in Berkeley and I, someone gave me a car to use and then it got stolen. <laughs> so, I was like, oh my gosh, it's one thing to have like your own car stolen, but then have someone else's car stolen. You're like, oh my God. Like, but for some, <laughs> but some strange reason, I was like, okay, you know, it's all right. And even my friend who gave me the car was like, it's, it's okay. And then I told the police, <laughs> yeah. I'm like, oh yeah, it'll probably come back in like a week or so. I'm like, what do you mean it'll come back? Like sound like a stray <laughs> cat or something. And, and lo and behold, it was like two weeks later, you know, it was like a joyride deal, right? And 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 I, and I got the car back. And it's so interesting, like, when you have those moments where you're just being able to let go of what's happening, whenever something does come back or something new presents itself, it's like this, your heart's even more grateful for what's happening. It's, it's like this like almost unexpected blessing. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Attentive Heart Podcast. We hope that you were able to find it helpful in your spiritual journey and practice. This podcast is produced in collaboration with Sunday to Sunday Productions and The Witness Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please subscribe and share it with friends. <laughs>